This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Some business before we get to today's show. I was doing some spring cleaning of my hard drive, you know, getting rid of the spare electrons and such, and I came across a report that I wrote in 2006 that I didn't remember writing, and I looked it over, and it's great. It's really fun. It is called Boomeritis BS, and it's based on an article I read in the New York Times in 2006 that talked about this thing called boomeritis, all these baby boomers in their 50s and 60s and 70s who were overdoing it with exercise and coming down with bum knees and needing operations and all this stuff, and why doctors were saying, you know, boomers really need to learn how to take it easy. And that got me angry because I know so many people in their 70s, 80s, beyond, who are still stellar athletes. And it's not because they're taking it easy, but because they're doing all the other things right. So I wrote a report, Boomeritis BS. So if you are worried about not being able to maintain athletic performance, or if your doctors are telling you that you need to slow down at your age, Hear something to to read, to show them, to wave in their face, to be ornery and cantankerous and rebellious and keep doing what you're doing. And you can download that at plantyourself.com slash boomeritis. That's B-O-O-M-E-R-I-T-I-S. Okay, on to today's show. I've got a repeat guest. Brad Stulberg was on a while back uh, talking about peak performance, and I had discovered him in an article in Outside Magazine that he wrote just about the time when I was really getting into running and pushing myself and overcoming discomfort and pain, uh, you know, under the tutelage of, of Josh Lajani and others. And this article was basically about the benefits of physical activity outside of the gym. And he was saying all the same things that Josh was saying, and he was backing them up with science. So I got Brad on the show and we had a great conversation and he mentioned that he was working on a book called Peak Performance that would be out at some point. And guess what? Some point is today. This is the release date of the book. It's a fantastic book. It's called Peak Performance. It's by Bradley Stolberg and his co-author Steve Magnus. And they tell a great story. Uh, first of all, both of them burned out in their in their initial careers. Brad, as you may recall from the previous appearance on the podcast, was a hotshot consultant, and Steve Magnus in high school ran a 401 mile. And you can understand the expectation that 401 in high school meant that he was going to be breaking records uh, all throughout his late teens, 20s, and, and who knows how far. And Brad burned out at consulting, and Steve never ran a faster race in his life. And they both found their way to kind of teaching, coaching, helping other people. And in their minds was this question, like, why did we burn out? And as we're now finding success in a new career, how do we avoid making the same mistakes? And so they have a book. It's called Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success. It's a fantastic book. It's so good that I read it on PDF on a on an iPad because they didn't have a spare hard copy to send to me. I almost never read digital copies of review books because I find it so annoying. But this one was so good that I, I suffered through the indignity of digital ink just because I wanted to get everything into my brain and to prepare for this wonderful conversation. So without further ado, Bradley Stolberg, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, it's exciting. As 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 this goes to uh, to press, we your your new book with uh, with Steve Magnus will be coming out. Uh, Peak performance. So con- for, congratulations on on birthing a book. Thanks. It's uh, it's definitely an exciting time. That's for sure. So I I, uh, I read the book. I finished it yesterday, and I really really like it. And one of the things I like most about it is how simple. You've made it. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of information, but the the way that you took all the information and kind of condensed it into these three main points feels really empowering. So, can you just kind of say what what the main points are and why you decided to uh, to take all of the research and and condense it in that way? So the the three main points or underlying themes. Um, that, like you said, became the three sections of the book are what my co-author Steve and I like to call the growth equation, which is stress plus rest equals growth. And I'm sure we'll get more into that later. Um, The second area is priming or the ability to create the conditions that help facilitate one's best performance. And that can be in the immediate lead up to it, but that could also be kind of longer-term environmental design. And then the third section of the book is all around the the importance and the power of reflecting on defining core values in in cultivating a purpose that underlies what you do. Um, In terms of why we, we group the book into those three sections, so there are all kinds of practices that fall under each of those sections. But we really wanted the reader to, to take away those three concepts because I think that um, they're quite elegant and not in the sense that we wrote them elegantly, but the, the science rolls up into these nice, nice buckets that, um, that hopefully really helps readers think about their lives and, and how they approach whatever it is they do a, a bit differently, um, but are also memorable. Right. So, so uh, tell us a little bit about your co-author, Steve. So Steve is the man. Um, Steve was a running prodigy growing up. He ran a 401 mile when he was in high school. I think he was 17. Um, and he did it at a track meet called the Prefontaine Classic, which is the, the largest professional track meet probably in the world, um, with the exception of uh, like the Olympics, which I guess doesn't really fall under the professional banner. So, yeah, the Pre-Classic, the largest professional meet in the world, and he ran this thing in high school and, and went 401 and smoked people that were Olympians. At the time, it was the, the sixth fastest high school mile, um, the fastest in Texas. He was on track to just be a complete phenom. And um, that was the fastest he ever ran. So he didn't run a step faster than that 401 mile. He completely burnt out in, in college. And um, in his second life is, is a coach, which is what he does now. He helps uh, both uh, world-class, so professional athletes, as well as collegiate athletes, um, attain their best performance and, and hopefully without, without burning out like he did. Um, so he's, he's a coach. Right. And it must, you know, just the irony of like your fastest mile is like one and a half seconds too slow. Like, you know, like the four minute mile is still this kind of iconic thing. And to, to, to stop at that milestone must've been particularly Hard. Yeah, so I think in the book we write, um, and I guess really Steve writes, that he, at the time, it was hard and frustrating, but he 
wasn't that bummed because he was only 17, right? So he kind of thought like, oh, of course I'll go under four, right? Like my best years are still ahead of me. And particularly in, in running and in, in kind of distance running and, and at that level, the mile is considered a distance event. Oftentimes athletes don't peak until they're, they're mid to late 20s. Um, so while he was definitely frustrated at the time, the frustration didn't really linger because Steve just assumed that he, you know, by the time he's 23, 24, he'd be running 350s. Right. So, so kind of briefly, and, and you know, we, we, and you've been on the podcast before, and we talked, we touched on your your past as a um, as a consultant, and then later, sort of a, with really personal agendas. It was almost like you want to write this book so that other people don't have to burn out in the way both of exactly. you Exactly. That was it. Uh, we had parallel paths. I mean, Steve crushing it and running when I was young. Um, I was a, a pretty good academic performer, like we discussed before. Went to one of these kind of big box, high power consulting firms. Um, did well, but completely burnt myself out. Um, so I think the you know the we came at it from saying like, wow, both of us reached pretty great performance, but we didn't sustain it. And looking back on it, the way that we got there probably wasn't what we consider healthy. And that goes hand in hand. It's real hard to sustain something that's not not fundamentally healthy. Um, so that was our agenda, right? We set out to try to uncover what are the practices that, that not only lead to great performance, but, but allow people to attain it in a healthy way and thus sustain it. And hopefully, like you said, how can we help readers avoid the pitfalls that, uh, that we made earlier and help ourselves? Like, you know, I'm 30, Steve's 31. So we're both young in our new careers. And the last thing we want to do is kind of repeat just in a different domain what happened in the past. So I think we wrote this book for ourselves as much as anyone. Huh. Right. And you talk about several several times in the book how you guys like forced each other or held each other accountable to implementing some of these insights that you you discovered through through experience and through research. Yes. It's always easier to preach than to practice, but uh, we are doing our best to, to practice what we preach, and it, it helps to have a, a partner in crime to to, like you said, hold me accountable and vice versa. Great. So, so let's, uh, let's get into the, the content. I love this idea, you know, stress plus rest equals growth. And the hardest part for me, and I actually, it, the reading your book came at a really good time because I've been doing a, um, a pretty intensive running schedule this spring. I've done a whole bunch of races and I signed up for the Leadville Marathon, which will be in like under under three weeks from today. And I'm just exhausted. And and I look at my training plan, which goes, you know, 10 miles today, eight miles tomorrow, hill repeats. And like some part of me is saying, you know, that's that's great, but there's something missing. And your your chapters on especially on rest and recovery really felt like it gave me permission to listen to my body and be a little bit smarter. Well, that's great. I'm glad that it had that effect. What's so great about rest when, you know, the people we see and we look up to, it just seems like, like they're working all the time, whether it's, you know, rock stars or, um, or athletes or CEOs living on Red Bull and four hours of sleep a night, you know, where's the evidence that, that rest and recovery is important for performance? So the evidence is strong. Um, the rest and recovery is, is important for performance. It's, it's overwhelming. I would say, um, what happens when you work a physical muscle and, and we'll get to cognitively as well 
is that you're not actually growing or getting stronger in your case, um, maybe developing more aerobic fitness to run during your workout. All that happens when you rest and recover. So it's almost like the workout that you do is the stimulus to your body. But in order to get the value from that workout, you've got to rest. So physically, when you're actually training hard and working out, your body goes into what's called a catabolic state, which is a state of breakdown. And short term, that's totally okay. That's, that's your body almost like getting embarrassed. And what happens is that catabolic state signals to your body, releases all kinds of hormones that say, whoa, like we've been embarrassed. We need to rebuild so that we can tolerate this kind of stress in the future. But that rebuilding process, it doesn't happen when you're working out. It happens afterwards when you're sitting on the couch or really mostly when you're sleeping. So human growth hormone, testosterone, all of the things that make the body stronger, they aren't released in mass quantities while you're running. They're released when you're sleeping. Um, so I really think like for me, it was kind of this paradigm change, right? That the training is just kind of setting the table for when you step away from training. And again, particularly when you sleep, that's when you're getting stronger. And sure enough, the same thing holds true cognitively. So all of the stimulus that we expose our minds to during the day, that gets consolidated, it gets stored, it gets connected when we sleep, um, not so much during the day. So very similarly to the body with the mind, what you're working on. So if you're like trying to problem solve, or maybe you're a musician, you're trying to learn a new song or an artist trying to come up um, with something new for the canvas all the work that you put in during the day, it really only has its value, at least in a long-term sense, if you sleep on it. Because that's when your brain kind of gets to work at, like I said, making sense of what you were doing during the day and building upon it. So you, you mentioned a, the, a Tetris study. Can you explain what that was and what it tells us? Yeah, it's a really neat study. It's, it's one of my favorites in the book. Um, it came from sleep researchers that were over at Harvard. And what they did was they had people play Tetris um, and they had uh, a couple different groups of people and one group had no memory issues. So they were like you and I, and another group, they were amnesia. They had bad amnesia. So they, they couldn't, they, I think it was like after a few hours, they lost memory and they had the groups play Tetris during the day. And then they had everyone go to sleep in the lab and they woke people up when they were dreaming and they asked the groups what they had been dreaming about. And the groups of people without amnesia, oftentimes they reported dreaming of Tetris, but the researchers thought, okay, well maybe they're dreaming of Tetris because they are, they, they're reporting that they're dreaming of Tetris because they just remembered that they had played Tetris during the day. But then they woke the amnesiacs up who, who had the condition that prevents them from remembering what they were doing. And they asked them, you know, what are you thinking about? And they'd say, like, I was thinking about Tetris and I was seeing these shapes and I was coming to these Tetris solutions. I have no idea why. And that was a groundbreaking study that led researchers down this path to explore that the brain is actually extremely active and it's making sense of what you did during the day when you're sleeping. Um, really clever study design. So the, so the idea is that even people who have no memory of what happened yesterday, their brains are still processing it and learning from it in some, in some fashion. 
Yeah, it's almost like they, they use the amnesiacs for the study as a control, or not a control group, to kind of like to prove. Because again, when they woke you and I up, maybe we were really dreaming about Tetris, or maybe it's just on our mind because we had been playing it earlier. But right. the amnesiacs, they had forgot that they were playing it. So it was, it was a really pointed way to say that deep in a subconscious level, your brain is working on what you were doing. Gotcha. So I think some, some of them even said things like, I was seeing these falling shapes, like they didn't even have memory of what Tetris was, right? Right, exactly, because they, they have amnesia. Something else you write about that also you know, made me sort of want to look at my own life is almost everything in life has sort of marginal returns at, at, the, at extremes. Like, you know, you exercise for five hours, it's a little better than four and a half, but, you know, like at a certain point, like the marginal returns become very, very small. But with sleep, it's kind of the opposite up to a point, isn't it? That the, the marginal returns of sleeping like seven to nine hours is much greater than, than what someone might expect. Yes. Um, so that is the case. Uh, again, really interesting and, and just kind of goes to, to show the importance of sleep. Um, so what researchers have found is that the more that you sleep, the more of the growth-promoting hormones that are released. And it's not linear, it's an exponential effect. And they, they posit that that is because as you sleep throughout the night, your deep sleep cycles tend to get a little bit longer, and those hormones are released when you're in deep sleep. So maybe your first deep sleep cycle, the whole cycle takes between 80 and 84 minutes. And then the next one is maybe 83 to 87 minutes. And these are arbitrary numbers, but just, just so you get the hang of what I'm saying. And by your fourth or maybe even third to fifth sleep cycle, it's 95 minutes. So it's just extra time when you're in deep sleep that your body is able to repair and rebuild physically and consolidate in store and make sense psychologically. Um, the way that we put it in the book is, for a lot of people, hours seven to nine, which are the hours of sleep that most people don't get, may actually be the most valuable. Right. And that, that was a bit of a shocker to me because I think about, you know, the, the thing I'm going to give up on so that I can go for my early morning run is that extra hour of sleep, right? Because clearly getting up early and, and go, getting a run in is virtuous while sleeping in is, you know, either neutral or a little lazy, but according according to your equation, the, you know that the the rest is without this without the rest the the exertion is almost pointless. Exactly, and we want to be careful though, and, and hopefully we make this clear in the book that you also just can't rest your way to growth either. Like you have to apply a stimulus and a stress, and the key is trying to figure out that balance. So, it, like, what we don't want to do is write a book that says you don't need to do much hard work or you don't have to put in too much hard work. You can just kind of rest your way to growth and progress. That's not true at all. It's just that when you put in the hard work, you ought to follow it up with rest so that you can actually adapt to that. And again, that holds true whether physical or, or mentally. Right. Well, it's like, it's like going into the kitchen, cooking a meal and then throwing it out. <laughs> right. If you don't cook the meal, there's nothing to eat. But if, if you don't put it down on the table and dig in, you're not going to get the nutrients either. Exactly. Okay, one of the simplest analogies that I like to use is if you just think about how you make a bicep muscle stronger, so the big muscle in front of your arm, if you pick up way too heavy of a weight and try to lift it, 
odds are you're going to throw your back out or maybe even tear your biceps tendon. So you're going to get hurt. Way too much stress. The flip side is if you pick up hardly any weight at all, you could sit there and lift it all day. Nothing's going to happen to your bicep. So the first part is kind of finding the right amount of weight that is a good stressor that really challenges your bicep and maybe pushes you close to fatigue, but isn't so great that you're going to risk injury. But even if you find that perfect weight, if all you do is sit there and lift, eventually your muscle is literally going to burn out. It's just going to fatigue itself and you're going to have to stop training. So how you make your bicep muscle grow is you find a stress that is a good challenge, but not too much. You stress the muscle, push it past its comfort zone, but not completely to failure. And then you rest and recover. And then your bicep gets a little bit stronger and gains the capacity to take on more stress. And again, what, what we found in, in the research and in speaking with lots of, lots of good performers, or not good, great performers, is that that same cycle explains growth in so many various capabilities. Right. And, and so you, and you talk a lot about various different ways of, of resting, of taking breaks, you talk about meditation, mindfulness, open monitoring, sort of body scans. But y'all, you know, so it's it's a great like I, I recommend everyone just get the book just for that menu. Uh, I think it's in in sort of chapter five. But you also talk about extended breaks, mm. um, which feel which feels like like a hard thing for people, even if they have you know sort of the the means to do it and and a, and a work schedule. It just it just you, you, you write at one point about the courage to rest. What, mm-hmm. Why do you think we need courage in order to, to take advantage of this really, really clear and powerful science? I think it's a leap of faith. Um, when you are working, you're actively doing something, and there's a tangible result right in front of you from doing it. And what you don't see in the short term is the fact that you could be digging yourself a hole and on the path to burnout. Or even if it's not that extreme, just that you think that you're working at the utmost to your potential and getting out the most, getting the most quality out of your work, but you might in fact not be. But when you step away and rest, and and particularly like you said, if you're going to take an extended break, it's kind of like you're jumping into the abyss. And and emotionally, it's only natural to feel really bad about yourself. Am I going to fall behind at work? What's my inbox going to look like when I'm back? What if I miss something really important? What if I kind of lose my groove? All the research says otherwise, which is when people come back from extended breaks, and and by extended, we're talking 7 to 21 days, they often have more energy physically, more creativity psychologically, more willpower emotionally. They perform better. And if they were on the cusp of burnout, they buy themselves some more time to kind of fix whatever underlying habits push them close to burnout. So the evidence is there. But again, in the moment, you're stopping productivity that you can see and feel immediately in kind of like taking this leap. And for me, I've experienced this personally on a much smaller scale. As a writer, if I'm working on something that is on deadline and I'm not done before I go to sleep, it's really hard for me to stop working on it and just kind of trust that by stepping away and, and getting a good night's sleep, whatever sentence I'm stuck on or God forbid paragraph or entire story I'm stuck on, it'll get better in the morning and I'll be able to approach it better and, and I'll have a significantly better chance of, of whatever I need coming to me if I just step away. But that takes courage, man. Like 
I mean, I've been sitting there at 9.30, 10 o'clock at night with a story that I need to file the next day. And I'm like, crap, like I'm not done and, and I'm stuck. And the inclination is to sit there and stare at the screen and try to work your way through it. When in fact, you've got a much better chance of getting unstuck if you just step away from it, get a good night's sleep, come back to it in the morning. And I know all this research, I've reported on it, I've spoken with people that have done this, and it's still hard for me to do. And I love that you and Steve sort of not only gave each other permission to take a day off, but kind of enforced it. We were all over each other about that, totally. The last time we talked, we really talked about sort of the, the benefits of exercise as sort of challenge, as as something that's hard and worthwhile. So I don't, I don't want to kind of, you know, go over that all again, but I do, you know, I do want to, um, to balance the discussion of, of rest, to, you know, so you make, we make sure that people understand this is not a book telling you to just close your eyes and sit in a hammock. And I, I love when you say that, um, growth comes at the point of resistance and skills come from struggle. Um, can you talk a little bit about, what, what that means and how we can figure out what our point of resistance is? Yeah. So the, the first part of that quote, growth comes at the point of resistance, um, that is actually from um, someone named Josh Waitzkin, whose story we tell in the book. And he was a chess prodigy turned martial arts champion. And the, for for listeners that might be familiar with the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, um, Josh was the inspiration for that. So he was the boyhood chess prodigy. And what he spoke about is in his progression to, to becoming so great at chess, he felt like he only got better when he got stuck. And then later in life, when he transitioned to martial arts and, and got on the path of becoming a master at that craft, he realized a very similar thing, which is that the workouts that challenged him the most, and sometimes even those in which he failed, those were the ones that would precede the biggest breakthroughs. So he coined this term, growth comes at the point of resistance. Then Steve and I dove into the research on just learning theory. So, so how do people learn? And a lot of that um, research is done in, in middle and high school settings. And what the research there shows is this notion that skills come from struggle. So very similar to Josh's experience, um, what learning researchers have found is that to really have someone learn, it's better to let them struggle with a problem than to come in and give them the answer too soon, even if that means that they might not solve it. So kind of old wisdom on learning is quiz someone and give them immediate feedback if they get something wrong, give them the right answer. Uh, the new wisdom and what the evidence supports is significantly better to let someone struggle with a problem um, before giving them the answer. And even if they're struggling in the wrong direction, just kind of the act of figuring out how to problem solve and looking at a problem from new angles can be really, really powerful um, for, for stressing your mental muscle. Uh, so in the book, we, we, we put Josh's quote, which I love, growth comes at the point of resistance, together with all the research, which showed that skills come from struggle. And, and that kind of led to this, um, this working theory that Steve and I have about the right kind of stress. And the right kind of stress is stress that puts you at that point of resistance or really makes you struggle. Right. And, and I love that you bring in you know, the work of Carol Dweck on, on mindset, because it's, you know, it's easy to tell people, you know, it's good to struggle, 
But if I'm feeling sort of bad about myself or unsure of my capabilities or I feel like I'm on display or or I am being tested, like use the example of like give a test at school where that's going to determine something about my future, I'm much less likely to embrace struggle and 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 kind of have put all my brain power into solving the problem as opposed to half of my brain power into judging myself for struggling. Yeah, I think so. I think it's so important um, to approach things with a growth mindset yourself. And if you're coaching or parenting or teaching others um, to really encourage that type of growth mindset that, that doesn't necessarily see the right answer as the ultimate goal, but that sees learning and development as the ultimate goal. And those are two very different things because you know, an extreme example is if the right answer, just getting the work done or winning is the ultimate goal, well, that's a slippery slope to using performance-enhancing drugs or illicitly taking Adderall or cheating. Whereas if the long-term goal is, is personal development, fulfillment, self-actualization, then all of a sudden failure is not necessarily something to look down upon. It's almost something to be celebrated. At the very least, it should be seen as new information like, oh, interesting, I failed. Like, this is an area I need more work on. Or I failed, and as a result, I got a lot better at whatever I failed at. And these are patterns that were expressed across all the world-class performers that, that we spoke with for the book, so over 50. And whether they were world champion surfers, runners, cyclists, artists, mathematicians, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, I mean, they all talk about that if they don't feel like they're at least at risk for failing somewhat frequently, then they get worried that they're becoming complacent. So I'm curious whether whether you and Steve talked about your own uh, journeys in terms of mindset because you know I don't I don't know much about them I only know some of the you know the details that you've shared in your writing but do you think any of it had to do with like having going from a fixed mindset to developing a growth mindset? It's a good question. I don't know if I've done the appropriate self reflection and soul searching on that to to give you an honest answer. Um, but let's see here. On the spot, you know, I don't know if it was necessarily fixed to growth mindset. I do think that I probably was a little insecure myself for whatever reason coming out of school. And I think we actually discussed this on, on the last time I was on the show, is that consulting is like perfect for driven, smart, insecure people because you just work yourself to the ground, kind of trying to prove yourself. And, and to whom, I'm not sure. I'm fortunate. I had super supportive parents, a good group of friends. So I don't know where that came from. Um, but I think the biggest shift was probably for me, at least I can't speak for Steve is that I kind of let go of like this need to prove myself. And in my second career as a writer in where I'm currently at, it's much more just like, I want to grow personally. I'd like to have fun. And maybe it's an ego thing. I've also kind of realized that no one really cares. Like, I hope this book does well. It means a lot to me, but like, whether this book sells a million copies or 10 copies, very few people are going to remember me when I die. So it doesn't really matter. So might as well like enjoy and, and try to take a healthy approach to things. Um, so perhaps it was like maybe gaining more, more self, uh, self esteem is the wrong word, but more confidence. And at the same time, losing mm -hmm. ego in parallel has kind of helped me have a shift. I don't know. Does that make any sense? I know you're not a therapist, but there you go. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, th I think so. And, you know, I, I want to talk about the second section, too, but maybe this is a good time to talk about the third section, which is sort of developing your your purpose. 
And it's, I love the way you frame like ego as, as, as almost like a, a barrier to, to a higher purpose. Like when, you know, when, when the ego is involved in like, what was my score? What was my time? What is my rank? What's my Amazon rank? Like I remember when, you know, the books that I've helped with and written came out, like there were, there were days where I would just like clicking a refresh on Amazon, like a, like a, you know, bunny on crack looking to see it's if it's like being in a casino. It really is. Right. And of course, none, none of it made it made a bit of difference to, to my life, you know, but, right. um, talk, talk a little, like I was, I, I was surprised when I got to the section three, all about purpose. And I, when I started reading it, I kind of felt like, okay, well, this is where you guys, you, you mentioned this, like sort of go into new age territory, like feel good stuff. And yet you backed up everything with like, I think the most impressive science for me in the whole book. Can you, can you talk about how, like, was that a surprise to you that that was an entire section? So it's interesting that that section definitely at first, Steve and I are like, well, we don't want to just like write inspirational self-help because if there's not evidence, then we don't want our name out of book that's telling people what to do that, that may not have evidence. That puts us in like a genre that we don't want to be in. Um, so yeah, we, we were, we were skeptical for sure. We, we had this hunch about purpose and the power of purpose, but we approached it like very, very, um, with, with a lot of skepticism. Um, but lo and behold, like you said, what, what we found when we started to, to explore and, and really get deep in that research was a wealth of evidence that shows that ego just can really get in the way. And that to the extent that you can develop a, a self-transcending purpose or a purpose that's beyond your own little ego, um, not only will you likely do better things for the world, but your performance will improve markedly. That was the part that got me where you, you use a very familiar story, in this case, somebody who, who lifts a car off of a, a kid who'd been hit and was underneath the wheel, and he lifts it up and kind of holds it there for a while while yelling at the driver to get out and drag the kid to safety. And I've heard, you know, we've all heard that story, you know, mother lifts tractor or whatever, and usually it's, it's given to just sort of, you know, this physiological thing, fight or flight, adrenaline, you interpret it in a whole different way. Can you talk about like what that means in terms of purpose? Like why why is that proving that transcending the ego and having purpose is is performance enhancing? Yeah, so I'll do my best not to get down a, a crazy rabbit hole here with with science, but it, it is like you said, fascinating science. So in in exercise science and physiology, um, in the the nineties, there was this theory that fatigue might not happen in the body. It might happen in the brain. And the way that this theory developed was a guy named Tim, Timothy Noakes, a South African exercise scientist. He would see marathon finishers speed up at the end of the race. And he said, this makes no sense. If they're at the end of the race and they're completely exhausting themselves, how can they speed up when the finish line's in sight? So it's not the body that's fatigued because if the body was fatigued, they'd be slowing down, but something's happening in the brain. So what he did was he designed a very clever study where he had people exercise to the point of complete fatigue. So I believe that in, in one study they were doing like leg curls on a machine and they did curls until they said that their legs were completely dead. They could not even attempt to lift the weight to fire their muscle. So then 
Professor Noakes shock them, ran an electrical, um, an electrical current through their muscle. And sure enough, the muscle contracted with complete force. So what that told Noakes is that fatigue is not happening in the body. That muscle still had more to give. There was energy in that muscle. That muscle's energy system was sound, but the brain was telling the muscle not to contract. And he called this the central governor of fatigue. And that is that the brain is the central governor. It controls fatigue. And why would that be? Well, when you think about evolution and why we're here as a species today, it makes perfect sense, right? Pain, fatigue, these are all things that, that are protective mechanisms. The reason that the brain shuts down the body is because the brain's like, whoa, if you, you push any further, you're going to hurt yourself. And that's a very ego-driven thing. It's very wrapped up in protecting the self. But if you think about your, if you, excuse me, if you think less about yourself, and this, this is where Steve and I really like, were just mind blown. We have this hypothesis that maybe if you think less about yourself, the part of your brain that would otherwise be telling you to stop and hold back because it's wrapped up in ego and fear, maybe you can transcend that part of your brain and, and get a little bit more out of your body or a little bit more out of your mind or, or take that risk that you might not otherwise have wanted to take. So, we, we left exercise science and found ourselves in public health. And in public health, there's this really interesting research about what makes people stick to challenging health behavior changes. So things like quitting smoking for somebody that's, uh, that's a smoker or adhering to a diet for somebody that's really battled obesity and struggled. And what researchers have found is that one of the most powerful things that they can do is have people reflect on their core values which is intimately linked to purpose. So core values are things like I care deeply about my community or I want to be an inspiration for my kids or I want to be a good husband. Um, they're not generally things like I want to look good, um, right? So they're not, they're not wrapped up in traditional notions of self. And what researchers find is that one of the, the most powerful interventions to help people take on a challenging health behavior change is to have them reflect on their core values and their purpose. They've even put people in... FMRI machines, which, which allow them to see brain activity. And they've had the control group just think about whatever. And the experimental group was told to reflect on their core values. And then they gave them threatening messages. So for a smoker, it might mean, you know, you can't smoke. And in the control group that was just put in the machine and given this message, a part of their brain that was associated with like a fear and threat response lit up. But in the group that was told to think about their core values before getting in the machine, they had a completely different response. They had what's called a positive valuation in the brain. So when they were told you can't smoke, instead of freaking out, they were like, okay, I, I won't smoke. That's fine. Um, so we started like putting these pieces of a puzzle together. And, and this is all still theoretical, right? Steve and I haven't done this research, but we know about the central governor of fatigue model. There's another model of fatigue and exercise scientists called psychobiological, which I didn't get into, but it's somewhat similar. And it basically says that, that fatigue happens in the brain more so than the body. And then we started looking at the, the, the neuroscience and the public health research around the importance of reflecting on core values and purpose. And we're kind of like, whoa, what if the key to getting the most out of yourself is to think less about yourself? What if that's what kind of gives you the power to overcome your fears? So kind of the final thing that, that 
made us confident enough to devote a section to the book is, is this, is, is then we looked at like what you might call real epidemiology studies, the studies that track lots of people for a long period of time. And what they find is that for people that connect their job to a greater sense of meaning or feel that their work has an impact that, that goes beyond just making a living, those people perform better, they have less burnout, and they have greater life satisfaction. So when you start putting these pieces of the puzzle together, you're like, whoa, this is like, maybe we're really onto something here. This is really interesting. And then personally, I always think, am I more likely to do something that might make me otherwise uncomfortable if I know it's going to be- benefit someone else, right? Like if I'm doing something just to make money or to win a medal, odds are like when it starts getting really uncomfortable, I'm more likely to pull back. But if I'm doing it and, and I'm doing it for my family or to be an inspiration to my community or if I'm part of a greater team or an organization or I've done some some consulting in healthcare, if I know the work could ultimately save lives, I'm significantly more likely to to dig in and and get through the discomfort. So sorry, I I warned you that that was going to be a long answer, but there you have it. I love that. I love that so much because it it, it brings together these disparate disciplines and it makes so much sense. And I'm sure you know, you, you talked about the epidemiology and the and the psychobiological underpinnings and the theories, but you also had this amazing cadre of high performers that you were in touch with in writing the book. And, you know, so what did they say about that? Because, you know, you think of, like, you know, athletes and artists as being, like, extremely sort of egotistical, you know, from, like, strutting around on TV or, or the, you know, self-centered – like, did you find that or did you find this, this principle in action of thinking less of the self? Oh, we totally found the principle in action. Um, and again, like once you start, and we spent two years researching this book, so it's easy for me to say it's kind of common sense, but now I come to see it as common sense. So when athletes do incredible stuff, right? Craig Alexander wins the Ironman World Championship, sets a new course record at age 40. Meb Kofleski comes the first American to win the Boston Marathon and God knows how many years I think he was 41 after the Boston bombing. When they cross the finish line of these races and, and the media goes up to them and they say like, what were you thinking down the stretch or how did you do it? They never say like, oh, I was thinking how good it would feel to be champion or I was thinking about the payday that I would make. It's always one of three things, right? It's I was thinking of my family and how much my family has done and sacrificed so that I can be here. If they're a religious person, it's I was thinking of God or some kind of greater calling, or it's I was dedicating this race to so-and-so with cancer or to the victims of such-and-such terrorist attack or whatever it might be. But rarely, or I don't think I've ever really heard an athlete say that like the, the meditative state that they got into was all about winning. It's almost always about something that's beyond themselves. So then we spoke with artists and we asked artists, you know, like art is a pretty competitive, gnarly industry and there's all kinds of fear involved in trying to make it as an artist. And what we found is that artists that were able to get through that and fight through that and get over those humps, they said that, again, they weren't thinking like, oh, you know, I want to be, have my work shown in a big gallery or I want to be profiled in the New York Times. It was always, I want to create art that makes people feel and moves people. Or I'm creating art because my grandfather and my father did, and now that's how I'm going to provide for my family and and continue in this legacy that's so much beyond myself. Um, Then we started talking to entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, and same thing. 
we found those that really have long careers, very, very rarely, even though they make a ton of money, do they cite money as the reason why they do what they do. And their actions back it up. They drive like Toyota Camrys. They wear clunky digital watches. Like the best intellectual performers or the best entrepreneurs or business people, even though they're making tons of money, what we tend to found is, or excuse me, what we tended to find is that they're doing it for other reasons. And those reasons tend to be around some kind of greater impact or meaning. Right. And you have, um, in the, at the end of the book, you have a really powerful, simple exercise that people can use to develop their own purpose statement. So, you know, just, just for, for those pages alone, I think, you know, your, your book should be an Amazon bestseller because it's, it's not hard, right? It's not, it's not complicated. It doesn't involve years of, of psychotherapy for, for most people, I'm guessing. But it's, it's, it, it really is an amazing, like, brain spiritual hack to, to live a, a more powerful and more fulfilling life. I would agree. Um, it, I mean, I, I've developed a purpose statement, and I have a few. I had one for writing the book. I have kind of a more overarching one that I try to apply to everything I do. And again, this sounds like very new agey and, and you know, kind of like out there, but I just write it on a sticky note and I put it at my desk where I work. So I'm like constantly reminding myself of it. And, you know, it's hard for me to say empirically that my work has gotten a lot better, but I know that I feel better. And I particularly try to remind myself of that when I'm starting to feel pretty cruddy. And it like very quickly changes the focus of my attention and, and, and at least subjectively makes me feel a lot better. So I think we, we, we've skipped over the second section, priming, which is fine. People, you know, it's, 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 it's really useful. It's probably um, sort of the most practical, tactical part of the book. But what I want to reflect to you, like what, my overall experience of reading the book is, yeah, that there's, there's genetic differences between me and Meb and, uh, That's true. you know, <laughs> and, and, the, and the different <laughs> in particular, you know, there's, there's differences in opportunity in um, in experience, but really, what separates me from my own best self and from from these peak performers Bingo. is just a whole bunch of daily decisions. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not. It's nothing esoteric. It's no. There's nothing like your book is 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 important and useful, but like there's nothing in there that is like totally counterintuitive. Like, like if I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. like there was one, I'm going to see if I can find this one, um, the statement from, from, from the priming section that I thought was, was most uh, significant to me. Okay, here it is. On page 154, you write, the real secret of world-class performers isn't the daily routines that they develop, but that they stick to them, that they show up even when they don't feel like it. Yeah, that was, like, uh, that's true. Like to me, that's that's kind of the the take home message. Like you've given me this great uh, cookbook, uh, you know, the theory and philosophy of cooking, and also a bunch of recipes and where to get the food and how to prepare it. But the difference between me and someone else who reads this book and you know becomes a world class performer is like if I don't do it, if I if I if I wait if I feel like I need inspiration if I need you know, for the stars to be aligned, that that it's all these little easy decisions. There's nothing you're asking anyone to do in the book that they can't do. It's just a question of can you do it day in, 
day out. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in, in, in that, I'm glad that you're having that takeaway. And that's, I think it's really important because on the one hand, it is really simple. But on the other hand, like nowhere in this book do you find like a quick fix, right? Like wear like this new headband that's going to stimulate your brain and you'll be smarter. Or don't worry about sleeping intermittently nap as long as you drink a special coffee before napping. Like there's none of that in the book because (laughs) there's no evidence behind any of that stuff. The stuff that has evidence, it's very, very simple. Yeah, it's hard to stick to and do. And, and that's it. That's like where the magic happens. It's just the consistency. And, and gets back to the stress plus rest equals growth. Like you can't rest your way to growth. You have to show up and do the work every day. And great performers absolutely push, but they're also self-aware enough to know when to back off. And then, like we said, they have the courage to rest. So just nailing that equation, I think, in your life, so, such a simple framework, so intuitive, but takes a lot of work and practice to do and, and deliberate intention. I mean, same thing with reflecting on your same thing with reflecting on your purpose, even right. Like, like you said, there is we 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 have an evidence based model in, in the end of the book that allows you to develop a, a purpose and probably do it in like a half an hour. Develop the thing, and you might really feel it and believe it. But when you start feeling cruddy or you start ruminating or, or or you find yourself in a rut, like it takes deliberate effort, intention, and work to kind of say like, well, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, like why am I actually doing this? And, and to reflect on your purpose and to get out of that rut, it's a lot easier just to, to let the negative thoughts roll. Um, so on the one hand, this stuff is simple, but on the other hand, I think it's a lifelong practice to master it. And I, I certainly haven't mastered it. I'm, I'm doing as best as I can, but um, I, mean, I think that's another lesson is all these great performers, they're, they're world-class performers are some of the most humble people. And, and they constantly were saying like, well, they, they, we were, we're asking them what they could teach us. And they were like, well, what are you learning? We want to try new things. And, and, and we're still on the path. We want to get better. And I think that's a huge takeaway, too, is that, like, there is no kind of nailing it. It's just constant working at these things. Yeah. And the other thing that, that I'm realizing is, you know, the, the importance of community. And, like, you and Steve created a micro-community to get this book done. And I'm sure you both pushed each other and helped each other grow and stay accountable and do the thing every day. And, you know, we've, we've seen you know, evidence of, of the blue zone cultures where community and, you know, group purpose is kind of baked in where you ne- you never wake up and you just think about yourself, right? That's kind of like a, a strange American affect, like this, you know, rugged individualism, like everywhere else in the world, the, the communal purpose and, and the way you fit into your group or tribe or, or village is, 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 is drilled into you every single day of your life. That it's really important for us to find community because some of these behaviors are just so hard to maintain as, as a solo person. Yeah, you know, I totally agree. And that, that was another, another finding, um, both in the research and, and amongst all these world-class performers, is just that the, the people with whom you surround yourself they have an enormous impact on your life and and, and in this context on your performance. And we like to think about like self-improvement and self-actualization is a very self-driven thing, right? It's self, self, self. But in fact, there's all kinds of studies that show that that the people that you surround yourself with, they have a a greater correlation with your performance than your own motivation or work ethic. So that's a, you know, a, a, a call for, for us to find people, you know, who read books like this, who, who chase 
who chase greatness and purpose and and who are who are willing to you know lift us up and and call us when uh, when we need it too yeah i think so um it, it, it performance is contagious i think that's what we say in the book um and again not just like a soundbite but if people read the book back then probably like nine notes in that section on, on studies across contexts that just show that the, the motivation of the people around you has a more powerful effect than your own motivation. Um, so yeah, to the extent that you can surround yourself and, and I think like you said, create communities or create tribes um, of, of people that will push you and hold you accountable and, and kind of call you out when you need to be called out and give you tough love. I think that it's, it's really important. And unfortunately, um, I don't want to make too much of a, a, a generalization, but I do think that like in the past couple of years, there's been this just broader degradation of community in, at least in the States in America where I live. Um, and it's unfortunate. And I think it has, you know, far beyond performance, all kinds of negative repercussions. That's where we can be most powerful as individuals is to, to better ourselves and find communities. So like, as I was thinking about my purpose statement, it was like, you know, to be a positive motivator because from the research, I can see how many people I'll, I can influence whom I'll never know about, never meet, uh, never hear about. But through through this, this cascading network effect, like that's if I work on that and it starts coming back to me, like that's where that's where I have power. Right. It's not, not so much at the ballot box or as an activist, but in my community in, you know, in just being myself and, and finding like-minded people, like there's, that's where the power is, the, the grassroots. Yeah. Work. It's funny you say that. Um, I commend you. I think that's a, a wonderful purpose statement. Um, mine is quite similar. So my, my overarching purpose statement is to, to cultivate positive energy and share it. Um, and kind of much like you, I think that that, that's where I have the chance to make the biggest impact. And, and as long as I can keep that, a. a not necessarily the sole motivation behind anything I do, but the predominant motivation. Um, I think that, that that's a good thing. All right. Well, as, as long as you haven't, um, you know, copyrighted that, I think I'm just going to steal it and maybe modify it a teeny bit, but it feels really good. Well, I think it's funny. You know, it's why I love talking to you and why I was so excited to come on the show is I think that there are these tribes and there are people I always, you know, I tell my wife, like there are people that just get it in, and I, I can't put it into words, but I guess it's thoughtful in, in people that I look up to and that I really enjoy talking to. And you've got to be careful because you don't want to create a bubble. But I've, often these people have very different political opinions than me, and they might think differently than me about all kinds of things. But I, maybe it comes down to just like a similar shared purpose. Um, and, and the more time that I can interact with those people and learn from those people, the better I feel. And I think the better I become. And that's a huge takeaway from the book. Right on. Well, so uh, I know it's the top of the hour. You've, you've got to run. I want to thank you again for, for taking the time and for the interview. The book is Peak Performance by Bradley Stolberg and Steve Magnus out today, if you're listening to this uh, the day it comes out. And uh, I, hope, I hope the book goes forth and, uh, and, and um, really is a vehicle for your mission statement throughout the world because God knows we Thank need. you. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Another drought. It's been three weeks since my last review. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com.
And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to Brad's website and the book on Amazon, which if you click from that link, I get a little change, which helps me find more books so that I can bring more guests to the show. And you can find that at plantyourself.com slash 213. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 212 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you subscribe to the podcast, but you don't get the Big Change Bulldog, my weekly-ish newsletter, you can sign up and get the Boomeritis BS report at plantyourself.com slash boomeritis. That's B-O-O-M-E-R-I-T-I-S. Big thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Domalova. Oh, Victoria, got to do a redo. Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes the Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gila Lacerte, David Donahoe, Blair Seibert, and Doreen Avizov, Rhymes with Keep the Cheese Off, for your generous support of the podcast. And of course, thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, Dance of Peace, as our theme music. You can find more of his music at willridenauer.com. If you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media via email. You can buy the book, buy Brad's book through my Amazon link, which gives me cash and gives me street cred when I ask other authors to be on the show. You can write that review on iTunes, break that three-week drought, and you can become a patron of the show with a one-time gift or ongoing contribution over at Plant Yourself. Com. That's actually a really cool thing to do right now because expenses are up and income is down a little bit because of the nonprofit that I'm working to form with Josh Lajani. So uh, to help me continue to put the time and energy into this show, a little cash wouldn't hurt. In garden news, I ate a blueberry yesterday. It was delicious. The basil is coming along gangbusters and the beans have actually found their support and are starting to wrap their little tendrils around the posts and start growing up to the sky. It's pretty amazing to watch these beans basically know what they want and know how to get it. In running news, I've started my taper for the Leadville Marathon, and I'm looking forward to going out there in a week and a half and coming back in one piece. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my